rather important point to recollect when particularly we are exploring ideas in Buddhism, which inevitably in these sessions we are, is to remember that um, everything that the Buddha teaches is meant or is presented as um, a kind of remedy, a kind of medicine. It's there to treat a disease, metaphorically. The Buddha often refers to himself as a, a physician or a doctor or a surgeon. And he sees his Dhamma, his teaching, as a kind of medical treatment. He sometimes describes the community, the Sangha, as kind of nursing staff, you know, uh, helpers, carers. Now all of this of course makes sense when we, we recall that he starts his whole teaching with an emphasis on dukkha, on pain, on suffering. He doesn't begin his teaching by saying, this is the truth, this is what is real, this is the nature of reality, at all. He starts and he continuously comes back to this point that his teaching is about dukkha and the ending of dukkha. Now this kind of medical analogy leads us to um, certain reflections, one of which is that it's not possible to present the Buddha's teachings in any kind of hierarchy to say that some teachings are somehow higher or better or more advanced or more profound than any other. This would be like saying that some medicines are better than others. That can only be true in relation to the particular problem that they're trying to treat. But if you were to ask what is the most effective kind of medicine, in the same way that we sometimes might ask what is the most profound teaching of the Buddha, that question would be meaningless. To say that antibiotics are better than beta blockers is an entirely meaningless statement. So we need to be careful not to slip into the idea that there is any sort of hierarchy of teachings any sort of progression somehow, but to recognize that um, what counts in any particular teaching, whether it comes from this early Buddhism that I'm exploring or whether it 
comes from Zen or Tibetan tradition, the important question is not whether it's more true or less true, but whether it works, whether it actually addresses and resolves issues within our own lives, issues of our well-being, issues of our suffering and pain. This is very similar, in fact, to the approach to philosophy that we find in the school that is called Hellenistic philosophy. In other words, the teachings of people like Epicurus and the Stoics, the Cynics, who likewise um, saw philosophy purely as a means to treat and heal the diseases of the soul. Now the fact that that may sound strange to us is because we've come to think of philosophy as a subject that we study in an academic department. It has tended to become rather abstract and it has tended to become an attempt to arrive at the truth. Whereas in the ancient traditions in Greece, as well as in India, and I think there are quite some possibilities that these two traditions have a common source, the aim of philosophy, the aim of the Dhamma, is always understood in terms of its capacity to heal. very good example of this is found in um, a saying by the, uh, the, the, the 9th century Chinese uh, Chan, or Zen teacher, uh, Yunmen. And since Martin introduced this Zen practice today, this might be um, a good reminder. Uh, Yunmen was once asked, what is the highest teaching of the Buddhas and the patriarchs? And he replied, an appropriate statement. So he, he didn't fall into the trap of saying the doctrine of emptiness, or whatever it might be. But he recognized quite clearly that the highest teaching is the appropriate one, the one that works. Now this, I think, cuts through a great deal of the sectarian disputes that so often characterize Buddhism as it's presented to us today. All of these distinctions between the Hinayana and the Mahayana and the Vajrayana and so forth and so on all seem to have fallen into the trap of hierarchic thinking and to have fallen into the trap of thinking that Buddhism is about trying to give us the most accurate account of what reality is. I think all of this misses the point. So what I want to look at today, which could easily be seen as the Buddhist account of what reality is like, we need to uh, recall that the Buddha is presenting us with 
what I'm about to sketch as another way to approach the healing of our own souls. And this is the doctrine um, of what are called the, uh, the Panchupadana Kanda, which means the five clinging clusters, literally. The five clinging clusters. Uh, sometimes translated as the five aggregates, which always makes me think of building sites. <laughs> the five clinging clusters. And we, I didn't translate it this way in, in the first sermon, um, but it's referred to in the first truth. In fact, it's his synopsis of the first noble truth, of Dukkha. He says, in brief, this psychophysical condition is Dukkha. Now that literally is, in brief, the five clinging clusters are Dukkha. So again, it's clear that this account of human experience is something uh, is, is another way of understanding what the Buddha means by dukkha. And I'm actually going to stop translating this word dukkha. It would be useful if we could just somehow get used to it rather than thinking it means suffering. Dukkha. So what are these five clinging clusters? These five clusters. The first one's called rupa, which means, again, difficult to translate, form, matter, materiality, sense objects. There's no word in English that really captures the word rupa. But let's loosely, for the sake of convenience, translate it as form. The second cluster is called feelings, which again is not quite what we mean by the word in English. It's something more like feeling tone, hedonic tone. We call lots of things feelings. We say love is a feeling, anger is a feeling, but that's not what's meant here. It's more just the, the kind of emotive colouring that characterizes experience, pleasure, pain, and whatever's in between. The third cluster is called sanya, which I'll translate as perception. Perception. I'll explain that later. The fourth cluster is called sankara, which was mentioned yesterday, which... Um, is virtually impossible to translate, but my current preference as of about two weeks ago is inclinations. Inclinations. Those things that incline us to do something. They're sometimes translated as mental formations, sometimes as volitional formations, sometimes as impulses. Someone once translated them as synergies, whatever that is. 
And the fifth cluster is relatively easy to translate but difficult to understand. And that's vijnana, which means something like consciousness. Consciousness. So we have form, feeling, perception, inclination, and consciousness. Now, again, just to step back, this is characteristic of the Buddha's approach to dealing with pretty much everything. Instead of speaking of truth, he speaks of four truths. Instead of speaking of um, the human being, he speaks of the five clinging clusters. Or instead of speaking of body and mind, the Buddha rarely uses those terms. And he certainly doesn't want to uh, assume that our consideration of, of our experience is divided between the physical and the mental. Later Buddhism became more locked into that picture. Once again, we have this, uh, uh, the, 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 this movement towards complexity, towards greater and greater differentiation, and a movement away from trying to uh, present things in single ideas. In, in ones or twos. And then if we look at all of these five clusters, immediately they break down into many, many more diverse elements. The Buddha seems to love diversity, plurality, complexity, which I think is a feature of his whole emphasis on conditioned arising, one thing giving rise to another thing, giving rise to another thing. And how when we look into any set of, of conditions, we find that when we try to see how they originate, we find there are many different causes and circumstances at work. It's very difficult to reductively arrive at any one or two things that somehow are irreducible or more real than anything else. The Buddha does not privilege consciousness, for example, over materiality. He presents a view of the world which is really one of uh, an open field of impermanent and contingent events, all somehow interacting, working together, vanishing, arising, when no single element is somehow privileged or has more reality than any, than any other. And I think the most um, uh, fundamental uh, picture that helps us understand this vision is of these five clusters. Now, one way we can think of these five clusters is um, not as five things, but really as an attempt, a sketch, to describe um, the totality of what is happening in any given moment. Now, when we uh, sit here in meditation, 
when we are maybe moved from the breath to the body to the feelings to the, to the totality of what's occurring, we may become aware that it's impossible in experience to draw any lines to, to split up our experience into bits and pieces. Language, of course, requires that we do that. When I talk of myself hearing a bird singing, then there's the song of the bird, which we locate up in a tree. There's uh, my hearing, my ear, my inner ear. There's the sound waves that strike that and so on. And we picture it to ourselves inevitably in language, in concepts, in thoughts as composed of different elements, bits. But when you just sit there and just open yourself to that experience, it's really indivisible. You can't say where the song of the wood pigeon stops and your hearing of it begins. In the same way that you can't tell now where your bottom stops and the cushion begins. And try it. You're sitting on this thing. Now, conceptually, of course, we know there's the body and the cushion. But in terms of what we're actually experiencing, this rather weird, fuzzy kind of pressure, where does the bottom stop? Where does the cushion begin? So there's always the danger in any kind of uh, set of, of, of concepts like the five clinging clusters to think that they must somehow represent uh, five distinct bits of our experience. They don't. They flow and merge and leach one into the other. So when we talk of rupa, we're talking, as it were, of the, um, the objective pole of our experience. Rupa gets split into five. We have things we see, which break down into colors and shapes, basically. Visual data. We have things we hear. Sounds, obviously. We smell smells, odours, we taste, tastes, savoury, sweet and so on. We um, are conscious also of what are called um, tactile sensations, roughness, smoothness, heat, cold. Now in English we don't have a single word that covers all of that. We don't call sounds form. doesn't make sense, yet they are rupa in this model. So everything that, um, as it were, comes to us, is, is given to us, is presented to us as sentient creatures, is what is called rupa. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, that are constantly impacting this 
organism through our senses, through our eyes, our ears, our noses, our tongues, our skin. It's ongoing. It's constant. And again, there's no point at which we can really draw a line between what we see or hear and our sense of seeing and hearing. And I think, you know, quietening the mind, stilling the mind, noticing, helps us break down that conceptual habit of uh, splitting things apart. So we have another term, although it's not technically included in the five clusters, called sparsa, which means contact. I think Martin might have spoken about it. Uh, there's the, the sight, the sound, the smell. There's then the impact or the contact, which literally means the, the, the touch. That then does two things. It generates, on the one hand, a certain feeling tone. And on the other hand, it generates a perception. So these are the first three of these clusters, the, uh, the materiality or the external sensory world that then impacts on the sense organs that generates immediately a certain feeling and a certain sense of what that thing is. And that sense of what that thing is we call perception. This is perhaps not such an easy one to grasp. But the feeling is, I think, relatively straightforward. In fact, feeling simply refers to the answer we would give to the question, how are you feeling today? How do you feel? And although we may not have a precise word, we will have a sense of where we are on a sort of spectrum which would have at one end agony and on the other end ecstasy. So everything between those two poles is what is called Vedana or feeling tone. For much of the time we're probably somewhere in the middle which I think rather unhelpfully is in some Buddhist texts, described as neither pleasant nor unpleasant. I've searched long and hard for the neither pleasant nor unpleasant and have concluded that it doesn't really exist. It's very difficult to find a state of total neutrality. If we're bored, that is almost invariably inclining towards the unpleasant, um, if we're just calm and equanimous, that, in my experience, is actually rather agreeable. So where exactly this strict neutrality is, I think, is a, is a bit of a moot point. And I think it misses the point, in fact. What the Buddha is trying to suggest to us is that, that all experience is emotionally coloured. Sometimes that's very uh, powerful, pleasant or painful. 
But for most of the time, it's just kind of all right or kind of uncomfortable. But this is important in terms of our healing metaphor because so often our reactions, our behavior, our trains of associated thought are provoked by this experience of pleasure or pain. We'll come back to that in a minute. But that's the point at which we then begin to get jittery, when we begin to sort of think, oh, I'd like to have more of that. If we eat something or hear something that feels pleasant, then it's not surprising that we then go, hmm, that's nice. Where can I get more of that? Or if it's unpleasant, then that's going to very easily give rise to the thought, I'd rather that wasn't around. Let's try and get rid of that. So feeling tone is very often the basis of our behavior, of how we act, how we react, how we respond. And very often that's kind of automatic. And the practice of mindfulness, in a way, is about learning to uh, diffuse that... um, automatic reaction. It's trying to simply notice the pleasant as pleasant, as the Buddha says, and notice the unpleasant as unpleasant without then getting drawn into strategies of attachment, desire on the one hand, or aversion and hatred on the other. So I think the... the, 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 the 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 therapeutic value of becoming much more finely attuned to how we feel, to our feeling tone, uh, is quite evident here. But what does it mean to say that when some datum of the senses impacts the organism, we also perceive it. We also have a perception of it. What does that mean? Where does perception come into this and what it is, it, is it about? I think a, a, the most helpful way I've found to think about this is to, instead of trying to treat this psychologically, trying to understand what that cognitive function of perception is that's going on in me, it's, I found it more helpful to think of the fact that whatever happens to us, whatever appears to us, makes sense. It's intelligible. The world presents itself to us as something that is already laden with meaning. Now this is so obvious that we don't notice it. But a good example would be, for example, uh, this piece of paper here with this text on it that says, study and meditation retreat daily schedule. Now, when, I, when you see this on the notice board, you don't have to go, oh, wait a minute, now there's some black squiggles on a white ground. Now, the first one goes like this, that's an S. The second one, that, that, that's a T. If you've ever learnt or tried to learn 
a different alphabet. I've learned Tibetan, Korean, I can read some, recognize some Chinese characters. When you first look at this stuff, it looks like nonsense. It looks like squig- squiggle, or as a friend of mine who lives in Japan calls it, spaghetti. It's just a mess. But as you learn to uh, decipher it at school, or when you study a book on Tibetan, for example, you slowly come to recognize it to the point that you no longer have to stop and think. It, is, it, it comes to look like this. Study and meditation retreat daily schedule. It's as though the, those words and the meanings of those words seem to jump off the page. It doesn't require any thought at all. If somebody wrote on the back wall there some piece of, of obscene graffiti, like, you know, Buddhists go home or something, <laughs> we wouldn't have to uh, think it would actually jump out at us and also provoke a very strong feeling, possibly, immediately. Now, if we start with that example, we can then also begin to notice, perhaps, that the whole of our experience is like like that. That when I'm sitting here looking out at you and looking into this room, that is all something I have learned to read. We think that when we walk into the room that we know where the back wall is, there's windows, curtains, people, there's John, there's Mary, there's Fred, there's Joe. And that seems to come to us um, as self-evident, as though, though, as though those uh, meanings were somehow out there. But they're not. We've learned how to read the world We've learned how to uh, interpret and to make sense of what comes to us as though it's all pre-given. Let me give you an example. There's a book by Oliver Sacks, the uh, neurologist. Um, His best-known book is called uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Now that, of course, is in fact precisely what we're talking about. Under certain neurological conditions, all kinds of really weird stuff can happen. People can mistake their wives for hats. That's a perceptual problem. In other words, instead of seeing his wife, he sees a hat. But in a book more recently published called An Anthropologist on Mars... Um, Sachs describes work that's been done in uh, restoring sight to people who were born blind. So people who'd never ever seen anything at all, they were blind at birth, and then at the age of 20 or 30 or 40, medical technology allowed them to have their to be able to see 
to fix their eyes in such a way that they'd be able to see. Now, common sense, which, frankly, is one of the most unreliable things around, (laughs) common sense suggests that, and if we sort of see this done in Hollywood soap opera style, patient lying on bed, bandages on eyes, bandages are then carefully removed and the violins start crescendoing, and person then blinks a couple of times, opens their eyes and says, oh, George, you're so handsome, or whatever it might be. Now, in reality, it's nothing like that at all. In, when this does happen, the person opens their eyes and nothing makes any sense at all. It's totally bewildering. There's just a chaos of what people call colours and shapes. A total chaos. There's no sense of distance, of of, 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 of meaning at all. The person doesn't have a clue what's going on. Now, it's very difficult for us to imagine that as, as sighted people. It's very difficult. And it takes such a person as an adult where their neural circuitry is already pretty much in place to learn how to decipher this chaos of colour and shape. It takes an awful long time and they never really uh, achieve the kind of naturalness that we take for granted. For example, it's very difficult for such a person to walk upstairs even after they've got used to it for years because they can't make the distinction between the flat bit of the stair and the vertical bit. And what many of them do is they close their eyes and they take their stick and walk up the stairs. Again, it's very difficult for us to picture that. And there are many, many examples of this kind of thing. Now, we have to extend this, therefore, to what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. All of these things, like sight are things that we have learned to interpret. And all of this is the function of perception. The, the, the Pali word is sanya, and what that literally means, sang means together, and nya means to know. It's literally together knowing. It's the knowing that puts things together. The Tibetans translated it as du xie, which means the knowing that collects or gathers things. Now we have to remember the Buddha was, was coming up with these, these ideas two and a half thousand years ago and recognizing that our experience is constructed. It is organized. It is um, rendered intelligible by our capacity to organize it that meanings um, are not given by the world, but they are established, they are learnt, and, as it were, uh, projected onto what happens. 
Now, all of this, of course, has implications. One of the most problematic perceptions we have from a Buddhist point of view is the perception of self. Now, self, too, is a construction. It's a perception. And we tend to have, uh, in a way, misperceived these clusters as selves that somehow exist uh, independently of what we see, smell, taste, touch, feel, etc. The reason the Buddha is presenting the world in this way is not because it's somehow correct, although it might be, but because it helps us deconstruct misperceptions. In fact, there are three misperceptions the Buddha lists. Misperceiving what is impermanent as permanent, misperceiving what is dukkha as sukha, what is suffering as pleasure or, pe- or happiness, and misperceiving what is not self as self. So perception, again, is a crucial element in what causes us dukkha. We misperceive things. We get things wrong. We thereby end up in a kind of conflict or a a misfit between what we experience and what we think we experience. An element of distortion comes in, which the Buddha calls avijja, ignorance or nescience, confusion, that constantly gets us into trouble. We have got this wonderful uh, thing we've now come to possess and and we project onto it the notion that it's actually going to always be like that. We project onto it the idea that it will always produce pleasure and satisfaction. We project onto it the idea that it is intrinsically mine. And that's where so many problems kick in. Because unfortunately, it's none of the above. It ain't permanent. It's not always going to be giving us happiness. And it probably is not going to remain mine either. So much of Buddhist meditation is about um, learning to perceive in a more veridical way, in a more truthful way, not for the sake of it being truthful, but because that has a healing effect. It will cause us less grief if we can interpret our world more appropriately. So we have rupa, the data of the senses that impacts the organism, that makes us feel a certain way about what's going on, and at the same time presents us with an experience that is intelligible and that makes sense. But all of that is relatively passive. It's what happens whether we like it or not. When I go to have my lunch, I am confronted with a plate of something, you know, a bit of nut roast and some cabbage and a 
blodge of potato. It makes sense. I know what it is, and I eat it, and it tastes good or bad or whatever. You can't really change much at that level. That's just data. The fourth cluster, though, is where we start to react to all of this, where we start to respond to all of this, and this is called Sankara. Now, Sankara is, um, if we break the word up literally, just as Sanya means knowing together or together knowing, the knowing that puts things together, Sankara means, kara means action or doing. Sang means together. It's what, how we put, how, how we do things in such a way that we put them together. In other words, it's active. It's not knowing, it's doing. Sankara describes how we um, act in response to what we perceive and what we feel. Sankara is what we do in response to what we experience and what we, what we perceive and what we feel. Now again, we, we don't have to look very far to see this going on. It happens all the time. The first, um, the, the first thing that we do is, is, is we think. We have thoughts about what's happening. Um, we have desires, we have fears, we have um, uh, fantasies. Uh, we start stra- developing strategies. It's everything within our life that is a response to the situation we're in. And again, I think in just by paying attention, by quietening the mind, by noticing what's going on, we can see this quite clearly. And in fact, it's usually those things that prevent us from remaining still and quiet and aware. We try to just watch the breath, quieten the mind, but then something triggers in. It might be a sound, it might be a shape, but very often also it's just a memory or an image that pops up in the mind. And off we go. We're into activity again. We're doing something. We're planning something. We're plotting something. We're dreaming about something. We're doing something. We're endlessly active. Endlessly active. Now again, there's no, that's not in a sense any way problematic. That's how we live. But again, we often find that what we're doing is not something we necessarily would have chosen to do had we been more reflective, had we been more, more careful, had we been more considered. It wouldn't be so reactive. And I think it's in this sense that Sankara um, uh, also seems to suggest a kind of uh, habitual activity. <coughs> Um, what are sometimes called habit patterns. Now, what we find, in, both in the early canon but also more developed in some of the later Buddhist philosophies, is that the more that we incline 
to behave in a particular way, the more that behavior will become reinforced, the more that we will like likely to keep on behaving like that. So let's say we have a tendency to be angry. The more that we respond or react with anger, the more we will reinforce that pattern of behavior. And so we maybe then get the impression that we are an angry person. But in fact, what that means really is that we have, let's say, a tendency for anger. We have a long history of acting out of anger. And that has, as it were, um, conditioned us to automatically follow that path of behavior. You might like to think of it as my Tibetan teacher used to describe it. He says it's like you dig uh, channels in the field of your mind. You dig little irrigation channels. Uh, And when it rains, that's where the rain will automatically go. The deeper the channel, the wider the channel, the more natural, quote-unquote, but that sort of behavior becomes. It becomes conditioned. It becomes automatic. And it also becomes something that's really rather difficult to resist. You might have noticed this. So the practice of, 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 of meditation is in some ways, um, as in, say, certain behavioral therapies, it's about digging some different channels so that we dig the mindfulness channel. We dig the concentration channel. We dig the inquiry channel or the loving-kindness channel. And we do this simply by uh, consciously uh, choosing Instead of reacting with anger, we, intru- we, 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 we uh, tell ourselves, basically, that is just anger. Notice it as anger. It's the play of the mind. We try to develop that inclination. It's just as much an inclination as anger is, but it's one that hopefully will lead us to less grief and pain. So in some ways, the process of meditation is about um, a kind of reconditioning. We're, by, by sitting hour after hour after hour, training ourselves to be mindful, attentive, focused, and so on and so forth, we are, as it were, um, uh, uh, establishing other routes of behavior. Now, in some of the work that's been done recently uh, on studies of brains of meditators, um, this is exactly the language that's used. That over year, over many years, it appears, our neural pathways, in other words, channels become redirected. Um, Much in the same way as a London taxi driver has got 
some big bit in their brain which has got the map of London in it, or the equivalent. He knows where all of these weird little streets are. Or if you look at the brain of, let's say, a violin player, there's a big bit around the fingers of the two hands which has been developed that we don't have in an ordinary non-violin playing person's brain. So I don't think it's terribly surprising that um, someone who's meditated for 20 years has not also affected the, uh, the neural pathways within their brain. In fact, I'm a little bit surprised that so much fuss is made of this. It seems fairly obvious. But it does confirm the basic metaphor that we find in the texts, which is that of um, creating some sort of uh, alternative channel of behavior. Now, it's also worth bearing in mind that this word sankara, the very word kara, is um, the same word as we find in karma or kamma in, in Pali, which means action. We don't have to mystify it as some sort of sort of uh, you know theory of sort of destiny or something. It just means action. So sankara refers to what we do, what we think, but more importantly, what we say, how we act with our bodies, how we uh, interact with other people. This leads us. Un- unavoidably into the realm of morality, of ethics, of choice, of behavior that has an impact not just on myself but on others. So the becoming aware of this, becoming aware of the roots or the sources of behavior is likewise considered to be very crucial in this practice. And you're probably aware of the, the opening verses of the Dhammapada where the Buddha says that, um, he, says, he says, manas or mind is chief. That if you act with an angry mind or an unwholesome mind, suffering will follow you just as the shadow follows the body. If you act with a positive mind, well-being will follow you just as a cart follows the oxen that pull pull it. So there's a sense here that karma is not something about trying to do good things to get merit so you'll get reborn in some nice place after death, although maybe that happens too, I don't know. But more importantly, it's about becoming more conscious of how our behaviours, starting with our thoughts, what we think we're going to do, how that actually translates into the quality of our experience, which of course gets back to Vedana, the feeling tone. I could go on and on about this, but let's we're running out of time. So finally, Kanda number five the fifth cluster, is called consciousness. Now, consciousness is not a some separate element at all. Consciousness is what 
arises out of all of these things coming together. Consciousness is the whole, W-H-O-L-E, of which uh, feeling tone, perception, inclinations are the parts. So in other words, what is somehow miraculous, what in neuroscience is called the binding problem, in other words, how come all of this disparate material coheres as a single experience? This is one of the questions that neuroscientists are asking. They don't have the answer to that. You know, how come I hear, see, smell, taste, touch, all of these huge amounts of data come in, and it's all one unbroken, seamless experience. Now, the Buddha calls that consciousness. But he doesn't think of consciousness as some kind of ghostly presence uh, in the mind, in the body somewhere, that might even go on to another life. He understands consciousness as an emergent property of the organism interacting with the world. In other words, consciousness is a consequence of rupa impacting the senses in a way that feels and makes sense in a particular unique fashion that we can say, I am experiencing giving this talk sitting in this room. Now, there's a very good example of that um, in one of the suttas in the... Um, in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, number 38, this is a dialogue between the Buddha and Sati the fisherman's son. Sati the fisherman's son is a monk. He comes to the Buddha and he says, I, As I understand the Dhamma taught by the Buddha, it is this same consciousness that runs and wanders through the rounds of rebirth. And the Buddha says, What is that consciousness, Sati? And Sati says, it's that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there as the result of good and bad actions. Which sounds a bit like a lot of what Buddhists will say. And then the Buddha says, misguided man, <laughs> you fool. To whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man. In many discourses, have I not stated consciousness to arise upon conditions? Since without conditions, there is no origination of consciousness. Monks, consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it arises. When consciousness arises, dependent on the eye and visual forms, it's reckoned as eye consciousness. And then he goes through the five senses. And then he gives an example. Just as fire is reckoned by the particular condition dependent on which it burns, when fire depends on logs, we call it a log fire. When fire depends on grass... We call it a grass fire, and so on. So quite clearly here, 
the Buddha does not think of consciousness as just one thing. There's visual, audio, olfactory, gustatory, tactile and mental consciousnesses, all of which are the product of the contact between an object and a sense organ when they meet, the consciousness arises, when they no longer meet, the consciousness is gone. So when I hear the bird and that noise impacts my ear, there then arises from that meeting audial consciousness. When the bird stops singing, the audial consciousness stops too. There's not some kind of consciousness waiting inside my brain somewhere for things to happen. Consciousness arises only when things happen. Consciousness, therefore, is not in the brain. It's not out there in the object. It's the consequence of the two coming into contact. It's 11 o'clock. So I hope that's been more or less um, coherent. And um, we'll stop here. Thank you.